Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, interesting side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, I'm recording on a Saturday, on Saturday the 19th of August, out in Reykjavik, Iceland. This day, every year, is Menningenot here in Reykjavik, which means Culture Night. So there are events going on all over town today, it's a fun day. There's always loads going on. I can hear in the background, far behind me, um, some some sound systems. If you are one of those listeners who listens uh, closely on uh, fancy headphones and you pick up any uh, background noise, then sorry about that. I've been waiting for it to calm down, but it seems like it's just that kind of day. Um, but I have some culture to talk about today, actually. I am going to talk about a couple games. I am going to talk about a featured game of the episode, which is going to be Meg's Monster a game that was recommended from the show's Discord and that I've played over the last week and really enjoyed. Uh, We've got some nice piano music from that game now. Um, And I'm also going to talk about a book that I read called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Um, It's a book that relates to games somewhat. It's a novel, uh, but I thought seeing as it's game adjacent, I I felt like listeners of the show might be interested in hearing about this book. If you haven't heard about it already, it's been a wild success. Uh, but I really wolfed it down over the last week, and so I thought it might be a fun thing to talk about as well. Uh, but before we get to that, there are a couple of new games that I'm adding to the podcast slate this week. Um, I've got a few new codes that I've put behind my ear and that I'm planning to play over the next couple of weeks. I'm adding Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood uh, to the playlist. This is a really intriguing-looking uh, narrative deck-building game, but... The interesting thing about this one is that it's based around witchcraft and it's based around tarot Um, and I have a strong interest in tarot myself. I love tarot cards. I collect them. I've got several decks and I like to read them. Um, I really love tarot and so a game based around building and creating your own tarot deck and then using that as a way to navigate a story sounds fantastic to me. So Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood is on the playlist. It's from the makers of Red Strings Club. That was a cyberpunk point-and-click with a good pixel art, if you've seen that one. I have it on my Switch, but I've never really played it. Um, But it is the next game from the developers of Red Strings Club. Um, I've also added a game called Adore to the playlist. This is a top-down creature-collecting game, um, I guess in the spirit of Pokemon. Um, But the interesting thing about this one is that it has real-time combat rather than the more traditional turn-based combat that we see in these kinds of games. Um, I like the look of the art style. I'm quite intrigued by how this one will play. And the last code that I got this week is a game called Kill Squad. I heard Brad talking about it over on the So Video Games podcast. And I really like the look of the graphics of this one. It's a top-down twin-stick shooter, um, but it has melee combat as well. It has lots of special moves. And I think it's intended as a four-person multiplayer game. Um, So I'm not sure how I will get on with it, but I did check before I requested the code, and it has a single-player campaign as well. Um, But the graphics are really cool. It's got eye-popping visual style with a really bright, colourful background with purple crystals and bright green vegetation and yellow sand. It just looks like a feast for the eyes, Kill Squad. So um, I do like the occasional twin-stick shooter. I talked about Nex Machina uh, back in the day. 
uh, one of the podcasts where I pronounced the, the name of the game entirely wrong for the whole podcast. If you do go and listen to that Next Machina episode, you'll hear me calling it Next Machina for the whole show. I was corrected and mortified later. Uh, but Kill Squad looks like a really interesting top-down twin stick. Um, looks like there are some strong loot elements to that game as well. Um, I'm not sure how I will get on with all of that stuff. If it's too heavy on the uh, the menus between the bouts of gameplay and on um, complex systems of uh, Diablo-esque loot and upgrade type stuff, I'm not sure, but I just like the look of it, um, and so I'm going to give Kill Squad a go to. I should also mention one more game that I got a code for this week. It's a game that you may have heard me talk about once or twice before, if you're a long-time listener of the show. Um, it's a game called Kentucky Route Zero. I got a press email about Kentucky Route Zero getting a, a new release on PS5 and Xbox Series. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure, I will take another look at that game. Any excuse to take another look at that game. Um, my code came through and I played a little bit of it. It's, it's wonderful. I think it's one of my favorite games of all time. Um, but I didn't see much different about it. So I actually emailed PR um, and said, is there anything technically or uh, upgraded or substantively different content-wise from the existing PS4 and Xbox One releases. Um, they replied that there is not. Um, so this is just the same game. Um, I guess it's moved to a different part of the store. <laughs> Maybe if people are browsing games that are optimized for PS5 and Xbox One or whatever, now this game will appear there rather than being an old PS4 version. Um, so I guess they're just updating this, this release, or this port rather, just feels like a little bit of eShop admin. Um, but honestly, any excuse to talk about Kentucky Route Zero, I will take. I still think about that game all the time. Um, and I am planning to replay it at some point. I have only played through that game once. Um, I did a podcast about it. In fact, episode zero of this very podcast. You could say that Kentucky Route Zero is the game that uh, made me want to do this podcast because there was so much in that game that I, I wanted to start talking about games. Um, and so Kentucky Route Zero is maybe the reason that gaming in the wild exists. So if you have not played Kentucky Route Zero and you happen to have a PS5 or an Xbox series console, uh, now you can play it uh, natively on your next-gen console. So I've done my due diligence and mentioned that to you as well. But that's that's three pretty interesting games there. I'm very interested in Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood. It's only currently out on PC, so I'm going to see how it, how it um, holds up on my Frankenstein Mac partition drive parallel Windows desktop setup. Um, but it is a point and click, so uh, lag shouldn't be an issue or anything like that. So hoping for the best there. Um, and I will talk to you again about Adore and Kill Squad at a later date. So to move on to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Um, this is a novel that I picked up. Um, at the end of each year, I will tend to go back and look over some of the books of the year lists, especially ones where authors are asked to give their books of the year. I really like the one that is in The Guardian. Um, it comes towards Christmas, I guess, in present buying season. Um, but I used to read a lot and games have kind of taken over. But I do like to try and keep up with um, what's good, you know. Like last year, I read Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads. Uh, this year, I've got Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. I'm always buying books and putting them onto a pile. I'm trying to leave tempting-looking piles around my house so that if I'm sitting on the sofa sometime um, or if I'm lying in bed and can't sleep, then there are always books there. Like, I've laid traps for myself to read books because uh, I want to read more and I plan to read more. Um, but I'm very happy that I picked up Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Um, it's... It came out last year. It's a 400-page book. It was a New York Times bestseller. Um, Amazon named it as the best book of last year. Um, it was all over the lists. And so when I was doing my research, 
about the best books of 2022, um, this one leapt out. Um, and I know that they say don't judge a book by its cover, but in this case, you kind of can actually. It's got an absolutely beautiful cover uh, with embossed holographic inlay text of the title um, and a, a cool version of Hokusai's Wave, that Japanese um, ink print from a long time ago. Um, so the cover art is absolutely beautiful and it has this retro gamer look to it in the font and everything. Um, and that, that Hokusai piece is referenced in the story as an inspiration as well. But the reason that I'm talking about it here is that it's the story of Sadie Green and Sam Masur. Um, these are two kids who meet in hospital um, in a chance encounter when they are very young. Um, and then later on in their lives, they, they drift apart and they come back together again in a really interesting way. They have a chance meeting um, and Sam ends up trying to reignite the friendship with Sadie. Uh, we will find out why they drifted apart. We will find out all about their their interpersonal dynamics, uh, their interesting relationship. Um, but when they get back together, um, Sadie has been making games. She's actually studying game development. Um, Sam has an interest in making games too. And they end up making a game together. Um, and their relationship, as it develops, grows through working together, making video games. And so there is a lot of chat in this book about the making of games, about the aesthetic of games, about designing narratives, about um, aesthetic inspirations is a big part of it. Um, the theory and all of the thinking that goes into making a game, um, the things that can go right, the things that can go wrong, inge ingenuity and gameplay systems, um, communicating to players. They talk about all of these things in dialogue. Um, Sadie is obviously studying game design, so we go through some of that with her. Sam has very strong feelings about game design and kind of a knack for game feel, you could say. Um, and so it's a very interesting literary novel about these two people that make games together. Um, and the book charts their relationship over a span of what feels like decades, um, both their personal relationship and their professional relationship, their various romantic entanglements, for better or worse, um, their psychologies and what makes them who, who they are, their formative experience, um, and how their relationship evolves and resolves over many years. But along the way, they, they achieve some success as game designers. Um, this is on the back of the book, so it's not a spoiler. Um, and so I think that the world in which Sadie and Sam's story plays out uh, or the backdrop, rather, it's, it's set against the games industry, um, the nascent games industry that grows over time, and they are part of that. So I guess it's the story of indie games as well. Um, games like Journey are mentioned, um, real games are mentioned, um, and you get the feeling that this is perhaps modelled on some of those indie successes, the John Carmacks and the John Romero's um, and the That Game Companies of this world are perhaps used as inspiration for this story of two game developers, two young game developers who achieve indie success to some degree. Um, they also make several games in the book as well, and we get to learn all about them, the ideas, the mechanics. There's a game called Solution that is quite interesting. Um, it's a university experiment that is perhaps reminded me a little bit of Papers, Please, in its moral conundrum at the centre of it. There's a game called Ichigo that they make together that sounds absolutely wonderful, honestly. Like, it's only ever described, um, but I really wanted to play Ichigo just from uh, reading about it. Um, and there's a game called Pioneers. It's like a life sim type game. Um, and I found the whole thing to be just fascinating. It was readable. It was a page turner. Um, I needed to know what was going to happen next. And the game did a great job of 
uh, moving the story along quite rapidly whilst making you deeply invest in these these characters as they uh, traverse their, their their life travails um, and as they make games together. Um, I did have a couple of quibbles about the game. I felt like um, it over-explains things sometimes. You know, there is a basic uh, game literacy lexicon that kind of everyone has, I think. Like, everyone knows who Mario is. Everyone knows who Pac-Man is. Um, and I would say that everyone knows what Frogger is or what a Goomba is, even. These things feel like pop cultural reference points that almost anyone is going to understand. Um, but this book goes to great pains to define these things. So when it mentions Frogger, it might say, a game where you play as a frog and have to cross a river and a road. Um, and I kind of eye-rolled at this point. It snapped me out of what I was reading, um, and I felt that the game was perhaps over-explaining um, every little reference to a game as if in fear that your average reader might not know what Frogger is or might not know what a, a Goomba is. But I think anyone who has played Mario, um, and that is almost everyone, surely, um, must have a, a passing knowledge of Mario. Um, and it felt a little bit like Hello Fellow Gamers um, at that point. You know, it was like supposedly a literary novel for gamers, um, but when it has to explain the very, 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 very basics and foundations of some world-famous seminal games, perhaps it could have skipped that, you know. It snapped me out of the moment a few times. Um, I guess that if it is pitched at a truly general, multi-generational audience, some of whom are perhaps, you know, if they're 20 years older than me, then they may have played less games. If it's aimed at the full spectrum of age groups, I suppose, you might have to give people an ABC of gaming, but as it is an in-depth book about the development of games, I think it would have been fair to assume that most readers would would get those references. Um, so as a former editor myself, there were definitely some uh, textual quibbles. There were things that I wanted to pull into shape. Um, I kind of wanted to get my hands into the text and work out these kinks myself and make it flow just that little bit more smoothly. Uh, but, but don't let that quibble distract from the takeaway of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is that it's a really rich, quite brilliant piece of literary fiction, I think. Um, it is located in the world of game development, and there's lots of interesting stuff in there, including some of the dysfunction that we hear about. It doesn't shy away from discussing um, in internal studio politics and how young developers can end up in uh, difficult professional situations um, and are open to abuse um, in, in various ways. It's all part of the book as well. Um, if you are someone who is interested in games and likes contemporary literature as well, I would say Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is a no-brainer, honestly. And if, if you're looking for a Christmas gift later in the year for a gamer friend who also likes contemporary novels, um, it's perfect. Or be like me and get it as a gift for yourself. Um, but that's it for that book. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Um, I picked up a hardback on Amazon for not that much money, so that's a strong recommendation from me. Um, and if you enjoyed hearing me talk about that, please do let me know. It's a bit of a departure for the show. It's normally 100% games in here, um, but I thought I would try that out. It's just a little bit of games media on the side. Um, so do tweet me or let me know um, if, if you thought this was an interesting part of the show, um, and I will bear that in mind. Um, and before we get on to Meg's Monster, the featured game of this episode, and get things back on track, uh, let me mention this is a patron-supported show. Um, people sign up at patreon.com slash gaming in the wild to support the podcast for a dollar a month or more um, that money goes back into the podcast it goes into upgrading equipment it goes into picking up the music that I use it goes into making the podcast better, paying for the domain name all of that kind of stuff uh, we are almost at 50 patrons 
And when I get to 50, we're going to do something special. So if you would like to support this podcast, show your support, then go to patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. In exchange, you will get 10 bonus episodes for patrons only. You'll get an invite to our friendly Discord server, which is for patrons only. And there's people in there talking about all kinds of games. In fact, the game that I'm reviewing today, I learned about in the Discord. I often learn about games from the patrons of the show. Um, it's a lovely bunch of people. So come join us. That's patreon.com slash gaming in the wild. And thank you very much to all my existing patrons. And thank you very much to you, if that's something you would consider. And with all of that said, let's move on to the featured game of this episode, Meg's Monster. So Meg's Monster is a game that I heard about through the Discord server. So thank you very much to Soccer and Call Me Steam, uh, both of whom posted this one and said it seems like a, a gaming, gaming in the wild relevant game. Uh, you were right, it absolutely is. So thank you for the recommendation. Um, this was developed and published by Odencat, a Japanese indie studio. Um, on Twitter, they bi their biography says, we make emotional games which you'll remember. Um, and they have made 11 games, none of which I have ever heard of before. This is the first one that has crossed my path. Um, the game came out earlier this year. It was written and directed by Ryotu Saito, um, and the soundtrack is by Ryo Uratani. Um, how long to beat has this one? At 4.5 hours to beat it. I think I took, yeah, about pretty much on the nose with that, I think. I don't have my Switch playtime. Um, it's out on Switch and all the consoles, by the way, and I think PC as well. Uh, Metacritic has this one at 79 on Switch and 85 on PC. Um, it was not widely reviewed, though, so that's quite a shallow sample. Um, and it tended to be that it had lots of high marks and then was pulled down by outliers. So I think that that 85 probably more closely reflects uh, critical sentiment. Um, IGN Japan had to say about this one that it was well-written and touching. Um, Noisy Pixel said that it lacked evolution by revealing its hand too early on delivering a weak second half. Um, and I have to disagree with Noisy Pixel there, actually. I think this game um, had a wonderful narrative that had lots of twists in the tale, took me by surprise several times, and introduced some twists on the gameplay as well. So I don't quite agree with Noisy Pixel there. Um, IGN scored it a 90, Noisy Pixel scored it a 70, so even Noisy Pixel scored this one positively, I would say. And the developers described this game as a retro turn-based JRPG in which the player controls a nigh-invincible monster who must defeat enemies whilst also protecting a fragile human child with strange apocalyptic powers. Because if she cries, the whole world dies. Um, and my summary of this one is that it's a simple, short and sweet pixel art adventure that distinguishes itself from the pack with some enjoyable writing and an emotional story that will tug at your heartstrings. And this game begins when we are controlling a grown-up Meg. Um, she's returning to a ruined science lab out in the wilderness, um, and she's trying to find clues to make sense of her childhood memories. There is a red star in the sky. We see it several times twinkling, um, and it makes her feel strange whenever she sees it. She's not sure why. She has some unresolved stuff that went on in her childhood. The memories are distant and foggy. Um, and so she has come looking for clues. She's come back to the one place that she remembers to try and find clues of what happened when she was a child. 
Um, we explore the lab very briefly, and then we find an old recording device, um, and she listens to an audio log presented to us in text. There is no VO in this game. Um, it's a very retro game in all ways. Um, but the message triggers memories in her. Um, she falls to the ground, and we flash back to Meg's childhood to relive her story decades ago. Um, and that's the only time in the game when we're going to control Meg. The rest of the time of this game, we're going to be controlling Meg's monster. So we flash to a different place entirely after that very brief intro. Um, and we meet Roy. Um, Roy is the one of the protagonists of the story. He is a monster. He is um, a big old mutant. He's a big hulking blue muscle-bound mutant. Uh, one of his arms has mutated into kind of a red claw. Um, he looks like an X-Man or something. Um, he's a big shaggy beast, basically. And we take over controlling Roy in the course of a normal day for him. Um, so he is living in the mutant underworld, which is a giant mutant-infested trash heap where he lives. He has a little shack. Um, there is human detritus everywhere that rains down from above. Um, the landscape is made up of piles of crap, old freezers, cookers, cars, um, just human objects that have been like a big rubbish heap, basically. And um, there's also a lot of toxic sludge everywhere, um, which Roy actually eats and finds disgusting, uh, much to his best friend Goland's disgust. Um, there is waste raining down everywhere. Uh, when we meet Roy in the underworld, he's going around collecting toxic sludge to take home for his meals. He's talking to Golan about life in the underworld, about the other monsters who roam around, about what they're going to do with their day. They're just, they're quite carefree. Um, Roy seems to have a very simple worldview. He just wants to eat his toxic sludge. He wants to hang out with his friend Golan. He wants to get on with his life, basically. Um, Golan is a different kind of mutant. He's smaller, he's more humanoid, he's less muscle-bound, uh, but he is green-skinned and he has sharp teeth. He's a bit more sly, observant, and subtle than Roy. He's like a, a smart sidekick for this big, um, honest lunk that is Roy. Um, and as we are meandering around the underworld, just uh, living the mutant life, um, suddenly a Meg appears, this very young girl, this human girl, um, wanders into the screen, having ended up in the mutant underworld somehow. And they are not used to seeing humans. Humans do appear, but they are usually devoured pretty quickly by the monsters who treat them as a food source. People fall down, bodies fall down, some humans survive their fall. Um, so Meg appears, she's just a little four or five-year-old girl, blinking, lost, disoriented, um, upset, and she has a cute little cluster of pixels with blinking eyes and an unkempt blonde bob cut. Um, and she's immediately very endearing. Um, all of the pixel art in this game has a lot of character, but Meg was a real favourite for me. I just liked her right away. Um, in fact, I would say one of the things that this game does best is to imbue all of the characters with a lot of likability, a lot of charm, um, a lot of character. The pixel art is super simple, uh, blocked in colours and sketched out shapes and not a lot of detail, um, but it's really lovely. It does feel like a game that could have been made for the Super Nintendo. It feels truly retro in some ways, not like the modern art, um, modern day pixel art games like Children of Morta or, um, you know, things in that vein with a, a prismic color palette and a lot more detail, making use of the increased screen real estate and um, more pixels than before. This one really does feel like an old retro game in a lot of ways. Um, the characters feel almost scrawled into a sketchbook um, in a way that I really liked, actually. 
Uh, but Meg wanders into the screen. She immediately warms to Roy and she tries to hug him, this big blue monster. Um, and he, he tries to get rid of her. He's like, get away from me, kid. Why are you hanging on to me? He's just a big monster. He doesn't want anything to do with humans. Um, the monsters are nonplussed and confused by her appearance. Um, Galon decides, um, Golan rather, decides that he's going to eat Meg. He says, humans are just a food source down here. Um, and so he's about to do exactly that. He bears his giant orc teeth uh, and Meg starts to scream and bawl. Um, and what follows next is the inciting event of the main story of Meg's monster. Something unexpected happens at this moment. As Meg starts to scream and cry, the whole world starts to pulse alarmingly and to shake. Everything gets hotter. Um, something is going down, some kind of big paranormal event. Um, the monsters freeze. They stop what they are doing. Uh, Meg stops crying and everything returns to normal. Um, the two monsters are trying to figure out what on earth just happened. They felt like the world was literally about to end. Um, and as they are talking this through, trying to figure out what's going on, um, something comes back to Golan. He remembers that there is a harbinger, a harbinger of ruin in the legend of the mutants that live in this underworld. Um, and it's a tale about someone that will come along and they will destroy the entire world. Um, and suddenly they start thinking, what if this kid is in fact the harbinger of ruin? And when she cried, when she got upset, she triggered the prophecy of the mutants that the world will end in fire. So kind of involuntarily and against their initial instincts, they decide to try and stop this kid from crying, lest it happen again. Um, they are worried, they are slightly scared, they are a bit confused, these two monsters. And so they decide to take Meg back to Roy's lair, his shack where he lives. It's just an empty cave with a bucket of toxic sludge for him to eat. Their first concern is stopping Meg from crying and trying to get rid of her, basically, because they can't eat her, it might trigger the end of the world. Um, and so they have this little kid they don't really know what to do with, they discuss it. It turns out that all Meg wants is to go home to her mum. And so the monsters decide to start looking for clues, maybe ask around a little bit, uh, try and find out who Meg might be if her mum is in fact in the underworld, if so, if she is still alive and has not been eaten, um, just to try and reunite them and to get this kid out of their hair and to make them happy and not cry and destroy the whole world. So with that main quest and with a handful of leads that they can go and look into to try and find Meg's mum, um, the adventure of Meg's monster has begun. I thought this was a very good setup for the game actually. I was immediately invested in this story. I was immediately invested in Roy. He seems to be just a big lovable lunk of a mutant. Um, the underworld seems very interesting. It's visually interesting. Um, Meg is absolutely adorable as this sweet needy little girl who is lost in this monstrous world. Um, and the hook of how she got there and how things will unfold uh, was enough to just get me from the off. I think it is the quality of the writing as well, like the way that Roy speaks, um, the way that his buddy speaks, and the way that Meg uh, behaves is all just super good. It's just, you understand everything right away. It just feels well put together. Like these characters are tropes, sure. Um, th but that means that we understand them. It feels like the setup for a Pixar thing or like a just a good quality anime or something like that. There is perhaps a little bit of spirited away in here too, with a, a plucky young girl ending up in a world full of monsters. It's just got that classic feel to it, down the rabbit hole kind of feel to it. 
Um, and Megan Roy's relationship will become the core of the game as, as you play through it. Um, their dynamic will change. Roy is initially just very, very reluctant and does not understand this little human ball of tears and, and needs. Um, but Meg just hangs on to him and it's just very cute that he's so unwilling um, to engage in, in <laughs> whatever this little kid wants. And this little kid doesn't even seem to understand what they want. They just like him and they don't know why. Um, so there's a, an odd couple comedy and chemistry to the way that these two get on. Um, and there's some really well done character development here, I would say. There are several big plot twists that come along the way. Um, the relationships between the various characters are interesting. I mean, as you get further into the story and you start to untangle exactly what this monster realm is, exactly how Meg got there, um, and what they're going to do to try and save her from this situation, um, and how the world responds to this unlikely couple of a monster walking around with a little girl um, that it would be expected to eat or to give to other monsters to eat um, is all very, very fun. But to get on to how this turns out in terms of the game and the gameplay, um, it's a top-down pixel art game, as I've described, with a very simplistic look to it, with a nice piano soundtrack. Um, a lot of the time you are looking down on uh, Roy. Um, he will absorb the people that are in his group into him. Um, so you'll walk around just as Roy most of the time. You won't do a lot of walking. Most of the scenes are very small. They're just a screen. And if you go into an interconnecting screen, it will flash across like a, an old 2D Zelda game, like Link's Awakening, where it's just exploring screen by screen. But this game does self-identify as a JRPG, and it has some JRPG tropes in here too, even if it's like a little baby version of them. Um, there is an overworld, so you can see a map occasionally where you move between scenes. Um, you can go and investigate the clues that they, um, the leads that that Roy and uh, Golam have to try and figure out what's going on with Meg. So you'll flash to the overworld occasionally, um, and you'll see different locations like the monster village. Uh, the flower field, the trash dump, and these various locations. You click on them, and then that moves you on to the next scene. So there's a, a little tiny overworld. There are only a handful of locations in the overworld, but it's nice to have that there, I think. It's a well-illustrated map, um, and I enjoyed having an overworld map in here, even if it's just a nod to JRPG stuff. Uh, when you click on a scene, you will arrive at that place, and you'll get to walk around screen by screen to explore the trash dump or the flower field or the monster village. Um, you can look at stuff. Although there is no visual indicator over things that are or are not examinable, um, so you have to figure that out for yourself. Um, it's missing that quality of life inclusion. Um, but most of the stuff that you have to look at is pretty front and centre in any given scene. Um, so I felt like I was, I was picking up on what I was supposed to look at easily enough most of the time. Um, you'll walk around, you'll talk to different people. Um, in the village, there are a couple of monsters at a marketplace. There is a, a guard. There is the, the monster council of four that govern the affairs of this monster underworld. So you can walk around, talk to people. Um, sometimes you have to go and look for an object. Uh, when you see one, it appears as a little twinkle on the ground that you can go and grab. Um, it's as much of a visual novel as a real RPG or Zelda-style adventure game, I say. Um, there's a lot of dialogue. It's short, though. It's short, bite-sized, tweet-length. Um, it all appears in a text bar. There are sometimes short cutscenes. Uh, when you approach someone to talk to them, whoever is in Roy's party at that moment will spread out from him. So you can see Meg, you can see Golam, you can see Roy, and anyone else that happens to be with them. And then they'll go through a little bit of dialogue. Um, and then back you go to your exploration. Um, the characters, I would say, are a big part of what makes this game good. There are some really funny characters that you meet along the way. 
Um, one of my favourites was a slimy, creepy, ravenous monster that looks like a big, horrible, sh- shiny, slippery frog that sort of mutters and slurs that it wants to come and find Meg. Um, and we see him just peeking out from behind things. Um, and that story plays out in a really funny way. Uh, the Monster Council is actually really funny. It's four mysterious creeps of various sizes and proclivities, um, including an old member who just seems to sleep all the time, a big giant guy. Um, and this is the Monster Council. You might expect them to be evil or hungry or fierce, but they turn out to be just such a funny bunch of misfits, and they all come out one by one to examine the situation with this strange monster who is harboring a human child. Um, There is another human that we'll meet named Paul, kind of hilariously bland name, who has mysteriously survived down here. Um, And we will go and talk to all of these people whilst looking for clues as to what to do with Meg. Um, It's written with a really good sense of humour. I think all of the characters in this game are, they're small scale, they don't have a lot of dialogue, but everything that they say just made me believe in them and made me like them. Made me like this mellow, friendly, amusing, lightweight sort of feel that this whole game has. Um, There is also combat in the game. There are bouts of combat. Um, There is not a lot of it, and it's not really serious, but it is turn-based. You will flash to a traditional JRPG combat screen where you're looking at the back of your protagonist, Roy, and then you're looking at at the front of the monsters that you're facing off against. And the combat is done with a really good sense of humor, I think, because the twist here is that Roy is an absolute powerhouse. He has 9,999 health, and whenever anyone hits him, they take it down by one, or they take it down by ten for most of the game. He is just this invulnerable, toxic waste beast, even if he is like a nice big shaggy blue uh, mutant friend. Uh, Nothing much seems to damage him at all. However, Uh, Meg is always with him, and she is hiding behind Roy, and you can see her on the screen. She has 40 health points, and it goes down uh, because she gets upset when she sees Roy get hit. So even if Roy is basically a tank, um, anytime he gets hit, she might lose 10 of her temperament points. Um, And if that gets down to zero, she will start crying, and it is game over because the world ends at that point, basically. So you have this very funny system where you're playing as a, a huge powerhouse mutant, but you're also playing as a little girl. Um, you're playing as them together. Um, and it introduces a very funny mechanic where um, Roy will collect toys over the course of the journey. He will try and find things to pacify young Meg, such as a rocket ship toy or playing cards or crayons, just basic kids' toys. You'll find them along the way, or maybe you have to go and look for them because you have to find them to stop the, the young Meg from crying. Um, and you can play with them mid-battle. They are like mid-battle items that you can use. Um, so if you use the rocket ship, then Meg's um, temperament will return to normal. Uh, the screen will stop pulsing red, and then you can get back to your combat. And this was just so funny and charming that you're playing as this tank, but you have to keep this little human girl in good spirits in order to win battles. It almost becomes like a little resource management game mixed with classic JRPG combat. Um, Some of the toys will give you different boons, such as making Roy's attack go up or making Meg's defense go up. Um, They'll put her in good spirits and stand you in good stead. Um, There are more twists to the combat later. It's never traditional combat. Um, And I think they do some really interesting things with it by applying it to situations that you might not expect. Um, But they do play into that emotional side of the battling mechanics in this game. Um, There are also a few sections of light puzzle gameplay, um, but very few and far between, just like Switch puzzles and stuff. But honestly, 
Um, they seemed like they barely belonged in this game, really. It is mostly a visual novel with these overworld exploration, if you can call it that, and very light combat interludes. And it's really carried along by the story. Everything in this game is very basic. It's scoped down. Um, the combat is unchallenging. It's like you're just supposed to get through it. It's more like making drinks in uh, coffee talk, that visual novel where you make uh, coffees for your clients and talk to them, than it is like Final Fantasy style strategic turn-based combat. It's more like a visual novel minigame than true JRPG combat, uh, but it does nod to JRPG combat in a really fun way in the aesthetics of it and the presentation of it. Um, and it was enough to keep me interested and offer some variation in the game. I really enjoyed that, that part of this game. And after you have done the task of the day, whether that's to go and talk to the Monster Council, or to go and find this mysterious guy named Paul, and see if he knows anything about humans, because Roy and Golan really know nothing about humans at all. Um, they just have to find information anywhere they can find it. Uh, maybe this mysterious frog character who seems to know Meg's name, maybe he knows something about Meg or where her mother is, and so... You navigate around the monster world, you do these little bouts of combat with uh, monsters that are trying to eat Meg, uh, you get toys to keep her happy so that you can get through combat, um, and the story just grows and grows, and it's like a day cycle, so you'll you'll start a day and go to the overworlds, um, you can then click around on wherever there is a, a quest marker, there are a couple of green quest markers for optional quests, but very few and far between, and then red quest markers for things that will progress the story. I did everything that is possible to do, and I think that that's the best way to play. Um, the little optional side quests are just parts of the story in a way. So again, it's like an RPG game mechanic, but not really, more of a VN game. Um, and the story goes to some really interesting places. Um, it made me laugh out loud uh, regularly, which is quite rare for games, I would say. For example, just to give one example, there's um, a, a sequence where Roy is trying to keep Meg happy because she's always demanding to play. Um, and he's found an old football in one of the trash heaps. So Meg kicks the ball to Roy, um, and it does this kind of pathetic little bounce, so slow, and barely makes it over to him, just like a little five-year-old girl football kick, so cute. Um, and Roy, not knowing really how to play, hits the ball back, but he hits it so hard that it blows Meg's hair back, um, hits a wall that then explodes promptly, um, and she has to try and teach this giant monster how to not destroy the toys when he's playing with her and things like that. There are some other really funny scenarios where this brutal-seeming monster is cast as a playmate, and it makes for some, some really good comedy. Um, I really enjoyed that part of the game. It's just, it's just loaded with charm. So to get onto some of the good and bad things about this game, I'm going to keep this as quite a short review, I think, because the game is mostly story, and the story is mostly spoilers. So I think just giving you this little description of it is perhaps enough. Um, this is a big recommendation from me. I would say that the good things about this game include the heartfelt nature of this story. Um, it starts as quite low-key, sort of silly monster story, but... There is more to it than meets the eye, I think. These characters um, become endearing very quickly because of the excellent writing, a well-paced plotline, um, good dialogue, um, just a good sense of being grounded in this world. Um, it does an awful lot with a little, 
Um, there's not a huge amount of dialogue in the game, but every character that you meet, um, you will feel like they have personalities and that you do get to know them. Um, it's also genuinely funny at times. Like, I found myself howling with laughter um, several times in this game. There are some great comedic moments um, where Roy the giant monster and Meg the little girl just make for some great odd couple uh, moments of, of play and fun. Um, and they, they, of course, get more attached to each other as time goes on. And, and it's all very touching and heartfelt. Um, I would also say that there is just enough gameplay to keep you interested. Um, the trappings of being a JRPG whilst actually being a visual novel um, works really well here. Um, the overworld map is familiar to us and our gamer brains, um, as is turn-based combat. Um, the variants of the combat are really fun. Um, playing as an invincible monster who's trying to save a little girl from crying, and that's how you win combat. It's just hilarious. Um, it doesn't resolve in usual ways, the combat, you know, often you'll get an enemy down to a certain point in the health and then something funny will happen and the story will just continue. Um, I think they did a really good job um, at keeping things varied and interesting and that the gameplay and the trappings of the JRPG style are enough to keep, keep the player involved, make you feel like you have enough to do um, and to make the story feel like it keeps tick, uh, ticking along, like the pacing of this is very, very good. Um, there is also some suspense in the story that I really liked. Um, it made me curious for what was next. Um, the gameplay is out in days. They are very short. Um, so you can play this one episodically if you want to. Like um, I, picked up, I picked up and played, I think, three or four times before I got to the end of the game. So that's like four one-hour sessions. Um, and for a story game... Um, I think holding on to the threads and making it short and snappy so you can put this game down, pick it up again, you'll remember everything about where you were. Um, it's all simple and well signposted. Everything works. Everything's in its right place. It feels natural. Um, and the story itself is full of suspense. Like the, the initial scenario of how did Meg get here, um, you being um, a grown-up Meg investigating the past and then reliving these experiences that led to her strange memories that are foggy, that she sort of half believes in, is very interesting. And I was very curious with how this would play out um, without wishing to give spoilers. You know, you do end up getting theories very early. I was like, is this going to be one of those games where it turns out that it's all a dream? Is it going to be all in her mind? Is it going to be you know, some some strange events that actually occurred. And trying to untangle that and seeing where they took it was really fun. Um, it wrapped up quite nicely, I thought. Um, there was some interesting little narrative twists towards the end of it that I found interesting. Um, it's a little bit convoluted at some points, like there are um, quite a few twists in here um, with maybe side characters, but I did enjoy all of it, um, and I think it, it did a great job at what it was trying to do. As for the bad things, I really don't have much bad to say about this game at all. Um, I would say that it is very basic in many, many, many ways. So it is slightly basic to control. Um, it doesn't feel good when you're controlling as Roy. Like um, sometimes when you come towards a door, he'll get stuck on scenery just for a second and you have to navigate his frame through the door. Um, sometimes when you are looking at objects, you might not know if you can or cannot examine them. It would have been nice if there was a little a dot or something, just a UI element so that you always you don't miss anything and so that you don't waste your time walking against interesting looking scenery and hitting the button to see if anything triggers or not. Um, I think it would have been nice to have that little UI element in there. Um, but it has a kind of an RPG maker sort of feel, if you know what I mean. If you remember the game To the Moon, 
which was a similar retro pixel art story game. It's a little like that in some ways. I think if you liked To the Moon, you will like this one too. Um, to the Moon was also a top-down pixel art game that plays with the old RPG tropes, but does something different with them and tells a more complex or a different kind of story to the, the fantasy ones that we're used to, basically. So it's very much like that. Um, and that's really it. I don't have much bad to say about this game. It is a very firm recommendation from me, and I would like to thank again uh, Soccer and Call Me Steam and anyone else too. I know a lot of people in the Discord have played this one uh, for flagging it up. It is a perfect podcast game. It's perfect for this show. Um, and it is a small game that I feel risks falling between the cracks. Um, the key art for this game is not great. I think the name Meg's Monster doesn't do it a lot of favours, and so in in the the wash of stuff that we see coming into the e-stores every day, um, and with a lack of press coverage around it, I think that Meg's Monster um, deserves more of an audience than it perhaps has. It is a, a better game than it looks like. Um, it's a better game than I expected. Um, it did more than I thought it would do, and it just has so much heart, you know. It's a game that is full of heart, full of charm, um, I really adored the story, and I had a great time with it. Um, I will look back fondly on this game. That is Meg's Monster. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. Um, that is the end of the show for this week. Um, I'll be back next week with another episode. I'm not sure what it will be about. I have an interesting list of games here. I'm thinking I might play Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood tonight. Um, the night is coming back to Reykjavik and to Iceland. It's getting dark at night again. The, the season is changing. And so I think perhaps a glass of red wine um, and a session playing Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood and building my own tarot deck could be a nice way for me to spend the evening. I also have Adore and Kill Squad. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. I'm a big fan of that old horror film. Not sure what the game is, but I have downloaded it on Game Pass. I'm going to give that a try too. Um, I'm also playing a little bit of Blasphemous 2, and I'm playing a little bit of Shotgun King. Um, so you can expect to hear about those games on the next episode. I'm not sure which one will take over and become my main game and the subject of the next episode, but I imagine it will be one of those uh, we also have Sea of Stars coming up soon, and we have Starfield. It's bearing down. It's only a few weeks away. I cannot wait for Starfield. So loads of exciting stuff to look forward to for the rest of the year. I will end by saying that if you enjoyed this podcast, please do share it, um, tweet it out, or send it on the social media network of choice, or just send it to a friend. I really appreciate it when people do that. Um, if you're on Spotify, you can leave a star rating. If you are listening on Apple, you can leave a text review and a star rating. All of that helps people to discover the show. Um, and if you want to go all the way and become a patron of the show, join the Discord and get the bonus episodes, you can do all of that at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now. <laughs>